Good morning, my loves. Happy Sunday. Um, we are meeting a bit later in the day than we typically would. Um, I have had quite the week. It's been a very busy work week. Um, and then I had a big family um, event to attend this weekend. That was lovely. But I also ended up um, eating gluten. And I haven't mentioned a ton about my personal life on the podcast so far. But I am, in fact, really severely gluten intolerant. Um, and I thought I made the right decision by getting gluten-free pasta yesterday at the restaurant, um, and it turns out that I did, in fact, get gluten-free pasta, but the, um, the sauce that they made, uh, for the pasta was a roux, and they used flour, um, and they failed to mention that they used flour when they made it. So, uh, I suffered greatly, and by the time I got home last night, I was in no shape to record this episode. And because this episode is not only super important to me, but something that I am very, very excited to talk about, Um, I just felt like I needed to be in tip-top shape in order to have this conversation. Um, It's also necessary in my eyes that I am in good shape for this conversation because it is a somewhat sensitive topic um, and I want to be sure that I not only do it justice but that my own personal um, struggle is not coming through in the recording of this episode. So you've probably noticed by now that the title of this episode is Absolute Loss, um, and as promised, this is a continuation of the series that we started last week. Um, If you didn't tune in last week and you're only tuning into this uh, episode right now, I would recommend going back and listening to last week's episode, Um, but if that's not your cup of tea and you would much rather just listen to this one, totally within your right, Um, but essentially what we're going to be talking about today is the large-scale... art theft that was conducted by the Nazis against the Jewish population as well as other minority populations throughout Europe during World War II. Um, And we're going to be talking about this today rather than a broad sense like we did last week on a um, micro sense as in personal stories that were recorded in the years following World War II about the large-scale art theft. As I mentioned in last week's episode, um, learning about the art theft when I was 16, uh, I was just, I was floored. I was blown away. Um, And my introduction to it, as I mentioned last week, was through watching the uh, documentary film based on the book The Rape of Europa. Um, And I feel like that was probably the best possible avenue for me at 16 to learn about this tragedy because the documentary itself and the book um, really go through every aspect of this theft. Like, not just art, but all of the theft that was committed by the Nazis against the Jewish and minority populations of Europe. Um, And so having that all-encompassing view really allows for not only a better picture of just how far-reaching this tragedy is, um, but how systematic it was and how detailed and thought out these plans were. Um, And in understanding that, you really get this different level of understanding the, um, the Nazi plans as they were, as they were, uh, going through Europe, um, and taking over different countries, um, and sending thousands upon thousands of people, millions of people to concentration camps. Um, and it makes you really acutely aware of the psychological warfare 
that they use to completely break people's spirits and just strip them of all their humanity. And that is not only horrifying, but incredibly necessary for us to understand, because as cheesy as it sounds, the whole, you know, you don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past is applicable here. And this kind of large-scale art theft we've actually seen in the years prior post-World War II um, in other conflicts around the globe. Um, and so this, although like theft of um, possessions um, has always been a big wartime tactic for the history of humankind, I feel like the art theft that was carried out and the possession theft um, that was carried out by the Nazis is just on such an insane scale that it really set a precedent for wartime interactions, unfortunately, from that point on. And so, like I just mentioned, in conflicts past that, we've seen large-scale theft again. Nothing to the level that the Nazis did, but still those very same tactics have been implemented again. And before we get into um, the stories, the main stories that I want to cover today, we're going to cover three stories. I do want to briefly mention um, one of the instances that's explained uh, during the Rape of Europa film as well as the book. Um, and that is the Austerlitz uh, train station in Paris. Um, during World War II, around March of 1942, um, the ERR implements this huge process called the Mobile Action um, Process. And essentially, this whole, this whole plan is to strip all of the apartments, the houses, the personal um, dwellings of all of the communities that have been sent to concentration camps to go into their homes that have now been left unattended um, and take all of their possessions and then ship them through different train stations in Paris um, as well as all over Europe to then have them sorted, repaired, and packaged by Jewish citizens um, to then be sent back to Germany and to then have people, families in Germany, sort through those possessions at department stores, auctions, things like that for purchase. Um, this is not something that's often spoken about in conversations around, surrounding World War II, um, but it is absolutely true and absolutely horrifying. And during the um, during the documentary, we hear from a man named Jacques Altman, um, no relation to Maria Altman, as far as I know. Um, the niece of Adele Blochbauer, who we'll talk about later in the episode, um, but he was at Austerlitz um, train station as a young boy, and he speaks in the documentary about how while he was there and while he was sorting through the millions of items that were sent through the train, train station every day for them to go through, he happened upon a photo album and discovered that it was his family's photo album. And as all of these possessions were filtering down this conveyor belt-like structure that they were being forced to go through. Um, he realized that the next section of items that was coming down were the things from his family's home. Um, and we can only imagine how horrifying such a thing is um, and how 
absolutely devastating that is for anyone, but especially for a young adolescent boy who has been completely separated from his family and is now day in and day out going through the very psychologically depleting process of sorting through people, his people's possessions, um, and knowing that they're being stolen, knowing that they're going to be sent to families in Germany and to happen upon his own family's things and having to consciously sort them to be sent away. Uh, it's, it's baffling. It's horrifying. There isn't a word large enough to just start to describe just how awful it is. Um, and he talks in the documentary about this photo album and how he, grabs a small suitcase, a small bag or a small suitcase that he sees coming down the belt. Um, and he attempts to put the photo album um, in the bag. And then he, I believe if I remember correctly, he hides it with him for the rest of the time that he is at that train station um, because it was used as a type of concentration camp. And then when the this train station is closed down, he ends up getting sent to a concentration camp um, and they found his, um, his family photo album. He attempted to hide it and bring it with him because it was all he had left. Um, his, as far as I remember, his entire family passed, um, in concentration camps, uh, which he found out after the war. But in this moment, he had no idea if he was going to see them again. And his only worldly possession, other than the clothes on his back, was this photo album. Um, and they took it from him. And he never knew what happened to it. But it is such a powerful, moving story. And to me, really encapsulates the title of this episode, which is Absolute Loss. Because when we're talking about, you know, art theft, it's really easy, I think, in the historical timeline of this to just glean over the fact that it wasn't just art. It was also possessions, and it was everything and anything. And a lot of people do end up seeing this when they go to the different Holocaust museums or the Auschwitz concentration camp museum. Like, you're able to see the scale of those stolen possessions um, because they do have some ex um, exhibits on it, but there isn't a lot that is said, I found, um, about instances like Jacques Altman's um, and literally the first time I'd ever heard that there was such a thing as these train station concentration camps was through the Rape of Europa documentary. So I just wanted to mention this story because it is not only incredibly moving and incredibly powerful to me, but I think it is so important to just understand the depth of this huge loss from the loss of human life, through the loss of personal possessions, through the loss of personal identity and humanity, and how that is all woven together in this grand plan by the Nazis, and how it's not just about, you know, the mass killing, it is also in tandem about the psychological warfare that they waged on these people. Um, and it's just incredibly, incredibly important in my eyes to really see that picture. And I think Jacques Altman's story is an is a it's a it's a very poignant example of such of such things. 
now we're going to very delicately um, move on from the story that I just told you about Jacques um, to the main three stories. We might only end up doing two depending on how long this runs considering I just talk, talk, talk. <laughs> but we are going to be talking hopefully about three stories today and I am pulling those three stories from one of the most treasured books that I have in my research collection um, and that book is called Lost Lives, Lost Art. Jewish Collectors, Nazi Art Theft, and the Quest for Justice by Melissa Mueller and Monica Tats... Oh God, Totskow? Totskow? Um, I'm really bad at pronunciations, unfortunately. Um, I do speak German, um, but I learned German from a professor who had an Austrian-German accent and then a different professor who had a Hamburg German accent, um, which are two, if you do speak German, you know those are two different, um, very different uh, dialect, dialectic, di I can't pronounce words today, <laughs> um, two very different accents, and so the way that I pronounce German words is kind of strange, um, so, and just in general, I'm pretty bad at pronouncing um non-English words in general, um, and I am trying desperately to get better at that as I embark again on the journey to try to learn French, um, but as of right now, I'm still not very good at it, but it's something I'm putting a lot of effort into, so please bear with me. Um, anyway, back to the point that we're trying to talk about. I'm going to be pulling these stories from this book. This is a super comprehensive book. I recommend it to anybody who is interested in this field, in these stories, if like this is even just a casual um, interest to you and you just like to read this book. It basically encapsulates a bunch of different personal stories about art collectors, Jewish families, um, just people in general who had their art and their possessions taken during World War II. And I'm doing this this week because while we can have conversations like we did last week about the history of this time, the history of this moment, I think it is equally very important to give you real context for that and for, for you to be able to see this is the way that this affected people, these are the way these instances um, carried out in people's lives, and these are the ways that they dealt with it during World War II and post-World War II and how their heirs have had to deal with it even today. Um, so I just wanted to talk to you about this this week because I feel like these stories do a really great job of giving us application for what we spoke about last week and will kind of give you a better sense of what I've been talking about since last episode. You might hear me pause a couple times as I'm um, giving you this information just because I do have the book open in front of me um, and I want to make sure that everything I'm referencing is not only accurate but, but succinct for the purpose of the podcast and for your listening enjoyment. Um, but today, our first story that we're going to be talking about, our first person that we're going to be talking about is Walter Westfeld. Um, he was born in 1889 and he died in 1945. So as you can tell from the dates, he died towards the end of the war or rather in the final year of the war. Um, he was born in Hereford and he was one of four sons and two daughters to a businessman. His father began as a rag ban um, and then later on was 
um, got involved as a partner in a merchandising business. And so as time went on, his family was able to access more capital and gain some more wealth. Um, his brother, Max, actually was a student at the Art Academy in Dusseldorf. Um, and from there, he became a really acclaimed portrait painter. So around 1920, um, Walter opens his own art gallery. Um, he opens the gallery. It's titled Gallery Walter Westfeld in Wopterall Elberfeld. Um, and as quoted by the book, the gallery's varied and important holdings are arranged over three floors as if in a museum. On the fourth floor are mainly old masters. It goes on to, um, you know, list out all the old masters, as well as works for the 19th century Dusseldorf, Munich, Berlin, Karlsruhe schools, paintings by Achenbach, Spitzweg, Schleich, the Elder, Zügel, Ude, Thoma, Schönleber, Blechen, E. Hildebrandt, Ludwig Richter, etc. The second floor is devoted to rotating monthly exhibits of work by living artists. The main room on the third floor brings together the English and the French, um, goes on to list a bunch of English and French names, and finally there are smaller rooms for the Romantics, which have always been especially cultivated here. Um, at this time, Westfeld is actually a member of the Rhenish Westphalian Art Dealers Association, um, and he becomes quite a highly respected art appraiser. So throughout the 1920s, this art gallery that Walter runs is seen as this shining jewel of what an art gallery can be. He is very well respected as an art appraiser. Um, he actually has exhibitions of his brother Max's work. It becomes a family affair. And all in all, like, he lives a pretty satisfactory life um, throughout the 20s running this gallery and being really immersed in the art world. And although things are going really great for Walter um, during the 20s, during the mid-30s is when things get really bad. So as the book states, on August 29th, 1935, the National Socialist Reich Ministry of Culture imposed a general ban prohibiting Jewish art dealers from practicing their profession, and in early summer 1936, the president of the Reich Ministry of Fine Arts explicitly forbades Westfeld from acting as an art dealer. He sent a copy of this directive to the Gestapo in Dusseldorf with the demand that they, end quote, investigate this Jew and former art dealer. Um, and this is actually a huge turning point because Jewish art dealers are actually becoming not only banned from their professions, but this is the first step in banning Jewish art dealers from their possessions. Um, and as you can see, this is 1935. This isn't even before the what we know as the World War II years begins. This is not 1940. This is five years beforehand when this is already, the, these terrible laws are already being implemented um, to just strip the Jewish community of their possessions. So we don't really have, I, from what I can tell in this book and what I've looked up on my own, we don't really have a ton of information on Walter's reaction to this. We can imagine that it was probably, he was probably pretty heartbroken. Um, this was his livelihood. This was his passion. And like, as we stated before, he was doing really well in the 20s. He was well-respected. He had a bustling gallery. And then he was just told one day in 1935 that he had no longer had the ability to be an art dealer um, because he was Jewish. So the year prior to that declaration, he gets engaged to his secret fiance, Emily Shulin. Um, they are very much in love. She is very much a supporting role, um, if not a 
massive hero in trying to keep his art safe. She is not Jewish, and so they kept their engagement and their subsequent marriage very private because it would have been met with a lot of anger by the general public at this time, considering, you know, there is a lot of hostility and animosity towards the Jewish community and anybody who is interacting with them and being kind to them. So Emily being engaged to Walter is a big no-no in the eyes of the public at this time. So the year following in 1936, Westfeld, he goes to the Reich Ministry of Fine Arts in Berlin and he's trying to negotiate the closeout of his art holdings. And what's shocking about this is the ministry actually agrees to his suggestion to have the gallery liquidated by his former employee, who is August Klüker. Um, and Kluger had been running his own art dealership in Wuppertal, I can never pronounce that name, um, Elberfeld, um, under his own name since um, early 1930s, like 1933. Um, and he actually, Kluger is in the process of trying to get Westfeld's artwork sold, um, but around December of that year, he ends up having to stop the sales because other non-Jewish art dealers at the time state that their sales are suffering because even though Walter is no longer operating a gallery, Kluke is selling Walter's art, which has high demand because he had such a beautiful collection in his gallery. And so they make a complaint to the ministry that their art isn't being sold well. And so they have to cease the sale immediately which then kind of brings Walter to go, well, I have to save this artwork because it's all under my possession. Um, so at this point, he begins an extensive transportation process of his art holdings to Dusseldorf um, in countless trips to his car, in his car, which at, in the book is stated to be an Opal Olympia. He stowed pieces in every available space, in his apartment, in the hallway, in the basement, and the garage, in the apartment building's owner, with the apartment building's owners, at the studios of, cons of conservators and frame makers, with art dealers, with a freight forwarder, and with art historian Professor Dar Karl uh, Kutschau. He also handed over a major portion of the collection to August Kluker, who would later, as soon as he had a free hand and without Westfeld's permission, put it up for sale in his own gallery in Dusseldorf, where he had relocated from Wuppertal in February of 1936. So he, you know, he's still very much committed to this artwork. Um, and even though he felt that he could trust August Kluker, um, he still goes out of his way to see the monetary value in Walter's collections and then sell them for his own, um, for his own gain. And then he just has to pray at that point that everywhere else that he stored these paintings will, they'll be safe and they will be held properly and without retaining any damage until he finds out what he's supposed to do with them or if he can keep them. Um, at this time, it's estimated that Walter has over 700 pieces of artwork of varying, um, varying, um, different, oh my god, what's the word? I can't even, mediums, oh my god. <laughs> it's one of those days, guys. Um, he has about 700 pieces of artwork in various mediums at this time. Year following is when things start to get really bad for Walter, um, and in 1937, after him and Emily have moved to Dusseldorf officially, um, and, like, have really fully settled, they receive an anonymous letter that denounces them for, end quote, race defilement. And it arrives at the offices of, of the Criminal Investigation Department, 
what ensues is this massive, um, they're subpoenaed, there's an investigation, um, and they are told that they violated the law for the protection of German blood and German honor. Um, at this time, as the investigation is ongoing, they're told that they can't find any, um, that the authorities haven't found anything that indicates, um, that they actually are, like, going against this law. Um, and they go on to question, you know, Westfeld's family, his old business acquaintances, people in his life in general, and they end up just suspending the investigation. But this is a real turning point in Walter's life because it's, up until this point, like, he's, from what we can tell, kind of cooperating very easily with the ministry. Um, and now, all of a sudden, he's being told that he's, you know, being accused of quote-unquote race defilement, and he's now on the authorities' radar, which is the last place you wanted to be, obviously, at this time. So whoever, or however many people, um, initially filed that anonymous report against him for race defilement were clearly unhappy um, that the investigative proceedings were suspended because only a month later, on September 4th, 1937, um, he is he comes under fire by the Gestapo, um, and he ends up being told to describe the, in detail, the dissolution of his gallery, um, and the Gestapo then order him to provide a list and then estimate the value of all of his art holdings. He's obviously scared, you know, like, he has Emily, but he's had to uproot his life. He's had to effectively just end his entire livelihood to keep him and his wife safe, um, and now he's being told that the transportation that he's been doing of his own artwork that he is clearly the legal owner of and has all of the paperwork for um, is in violation of transportation law at the time. Um, so he actually ends up downplaying um, how much he's been transporting the art. Um, and he was doing that in order to like kind of push aside or dispel this suspicion that he's been selling things illegally, that he's been selling art under the table. He's done none of this, but they can use this excessive um, transport that they've seen from him and that has been whistleblown on him as a way to posit that he has in fact sold things under the table or he is moving artwork illegally, um, which is obviously really, really scary for him at this time and puts him very much in hot water. Walter's not an idiot, you know, he's a very, he's a very intelligent man, he knows the value of his art holdings, but in, he knows that the Gestapo, or the Gestapo rather, are probably not going to fact check on him on this, or at least he hopes, um, and so he presents his list to them, um, and he states that he, the collection itself should be valued about 30,000 Reichsmarks, um, Reichsmarks, and that is actually probably 20 times less than the value of the entire collection that he has. Um, but obviously he's just trying to save himself. And after this big scare and while these proceedings are happening, him and Emily start the process of trying to immigrate to the U.S. because they realize that they are not safe. Um, they had known for quite some time that they were not safe, but they're seeing their family and friends around them, their Jewish family and friends around them, um, increasingly coming under similar scrutiny for a variety of things, and they're sensing the impending danger, and they know that 
you know, that they both really care and value the art, but at the end of the day, they need to save themselves. Um, and so they start deliberating, um, moving overseas and just being able to restart and be in the safety of the U.S. um, or even go somewhere else in Europe if they're not able to go to the U.S. Unfortunately, though, um, his attempts to flee Dusseldorf with Emily did not go unnoticed, um, and once again, he is whistleblown. And on November 15th, 1938, a few days before Kristallnacht, um, he is arrested. And that same day, according to the book, the Foreign Exchange Search Office confiscated all of his assets still remaining in Germany, including his enormous art collection. A short time later, Westfeld's Olympia sedan was driven around town by a Dusseldorf Gestapo, Gestapo henchman named Cowens. Um, Werner Abel, Fritz Bayer, and August Kluke were also taken into custody because they were accused of continually and deliberately aiding and abetting the Jew Walter Westfeld in smuggling his artworks and other assets out of the country with the aim of attaining a favorable transfer of capital, end quote. Um, so this is, this is, um, Kluke and Bayer are released, but this is only the beginning of the terrible experience that Walter and Emily are about to endure. The, um, the public prosecutor at the time that is serving over Walter's case orders that the 700-some pieces of artwork are auctioned off in order to pay the fines, um, that are added to what he's being accused of, or, like, rather related to what he's being accused of, um, which is currency transportation violations. Um, so the auction is actually held at Kunsthaus uh, Matthias Lampertz in Cologne on December 12th and 13th of 1939. So we've gone from 1937, when the initial um, whistleblow happens, to his arrest in 1938. Um, and then he's not, the auction of his property and the subsequent quote-unquote paying of these fines is not paid until a year later on December 12th and 13th of 1939 at the auction. Um, he was actually transferred to Cologne for a few days to help um, prepare for the sale and then at that time on December 1st of 1939 he writes um, to his relative Richard uh, Lovenstein the issue of the auction of my art holdings at Lempertz and Cologne, New Mocked Three, is still burning in my soul. I've corrected a rough draft of the catalogue, and I'm annoyed and perplexed that I still haven't been sent a copy of the catalogue, as was agreed, so I can write in the lowest acceptable prices. It must be avoided at all costs that certain valuable pictures are sold dirt cheap, as happens so often. Um, and unfortunately, uh, such things did happen. They did not consult Walter on the artwork and a lot of very famous pieces were mislabeled and were sold at a very, very low rate. And, you know, this actually, in my eyes and probably in a lot of scholars' eyes, leads to the subsequent loss of the, um, of the collection as a whole because so much was sold so cheap and sold under the wrong names or the wrong artists, um, that it, a lot of it just gets lost because just anybody could buy it. And so, you know, you have, you have people buying stuff at this auction under the table and there's no record of it. And so that's why it just becomes very easy for his collection to be completely just decimated as a whole. Every single piece of art that Walter owned, all 700 so some odd pieces are sold at Lempert's. Um, and he is just standing by. 
he's sent back to prison, um, and he describes in a letter to Emily, uh, that the days of the auction were the blackest days of his life. Um, and this references again, the psychological impact that we're talking about. You know, we're talking about not only him going and being forced into prison, um, for crimes that he did not commit, um, but then being stripped of his property, stripped of his livelihood, and then asked to consult on the stripping of his livelihood and property, and then being forced to sit idle by while he watches all the things that he's worked for, this, like, career that he's built for himself, this artwork that he values so much, just purchased en masse, um, never to be seen again. And while he still has Emily, like, he's sitting alone in a cell. There's, there's nothing he can do about this. He owns, he owns no rights over the works, even though everything has been purchased legally. And he's, at this point, other than Emily, effectively lost everything. And so there's not a lot of hope here. And this is just so representative of the psychological impact of this theft and just how much of his identity, how much of it is tied to the identity of these people and like how much of their identity and their humanity is lost and seeing the things they care about the most just stripped from them. Only a month later on January 3rd, 1940, the chief public prosecutor, as stated by the book, files a suit against, end quote, Jewish Devinsenstreiber, currency smuggler, uh, Walter Westfeld, and Hanstein, who is the co-owner of Lempert's auction house, the person who presided over the auction of all of Walter's possessions, is called in as an expert witness, um, and that's when the key point is brought up that we talked about earlier, where Walter undervalued a lot of his holdings in fear that if he valued them for what they truly were when he gave the list to the Gestapo, um, they would just immediately send him to prison. So they pull up, uh, they have Hanstein basically prove that what Walter submitted as the value of the collection was false. Um, and this is then enough for them to sentence him, essentially, um, because they see him as being deceitful and this being a cover-up for the currency smuggling that he was doing in his eye, in their eyes. Uh, obviously, none of that is true. He was not sm smuggling currency um, and he did not get the ability to defend himself. Um, but the court ruled on July 2nd, 1940, that Westfield's deeds represented, unquote, a particularly heinous case, and they sentenced him in the name of the people to three and a half years in jail and a fine of 300,000 Reichsmarks, which was to be taken directly from the proceeds of the Lempert's auction. He was also required to pay all legal fees with any money he and Emily still had. Walter and Emily end up ultimately paying the remainder of the fines with the money that they have. Um, Walter serves this sentence as he's been instructed to do by the law, um, and he's actually coming to the end of his three-and-a-half-year sentence, and he's close to being done. It's begun, like, the, the, the year, the, the war has begun at this point. Um, we're well past the start of the war in 1940, um, and just as he is reaching the time to finally be set free on April 17th, 1942, um, the book says that the prison notified the Gestapo of his impending release, and the Gestapo then ordered him to be moved to a Dusseldorf jail the same day since he was to be imprisoned again 
Two weeks later, the Gestapo applied to the Reichsmain Security Office, RSHA, for permission to take a Jew into protective custody after serving his sentence, because there were plans for Westfeld to, end quote, be evacuated. On July 30th, 1942, the Gestapo was issued a warrant for his arrest based on their opinion that Westfeld's release would endanger the survival and security of people and the state. Um, it's obviously a crock of bullshit, pardon my French. Um... They know that the the concentration camps are an option. They know that Walter is Jewish. They see an opportunity to move him to a concentration camp rather than set him free because they know that if they do allow him to set allowed to set him free, him and Emily will likely find a way to flee the country together. Um, and now that he's had such a high profile case, three years prior regarding his collections, they want to make an example of him. Um, and it's just, it's just so mortifying to see their reasoning for keeping him from going released as the survival and security of the people and the state, as if Walter Westfeld is somehow going to be some sort of terrible, um, terrible person that could potentially endanger the lives of people all because he had a bunch of art that he rightfully owned and he served a prison sentence that he was given to full term without issue and paid fees without issue. Um, it's just, it's absolutely disgusting. They're basically searching for any reason at this moment to keep, to justify that statement that I just said. And so they end up sending court justice Peter Schiffer to brutally interrogate Walter Westfeld. Um, and in doing this, um, Walter has had enough. He refuses to give a statement. Um, they take his refusal as giving a statement to indicate that he has transported artwork or had artwork moved by Emily or family, relatives, friends under, without them knowing, or has had more artwork than he ever admitted to. And so he must, in their eyes, have a bunch of work still kept aside. Um, and Schiffer is quoted as flying into a rage, and he apparently said to Westfeld, he, he, de he defines Westfeld as a vile crook and typical representative of Judaism who, if he were, were released, would continue to hound mankind through swindling and racketeering. Um, and as a consequence of Schiffer's just abysmal, absolutely awful statement about Westfeld, um, the public prosecutor's office says that they no longer had any interest in Westfeld and they deem it necessary to consign him to a concentration camp. Um, and it is just... Uh, it's like they they run this man dry. They, they strip him of all property, of all his worldly possessions. They ruin his life. They ruin his livelihood. They take him away from his wife. Um, and then because he's like, I have nothing more to give you. I have nothing more to tell you. Like, I literally do not have anything left. They fly off the handle. The court justice uses this, uses him not having anything left as a reason to state that he is somehow a danger to the greater good of Europe. And they then say, you know, he's useless to us now. And they send him to a concentration camp to die. And like, all of this over art all of this over him being Jewish and them wanting so desperately to make him a villain for being Jewish. But they were totally fine at the same time using him to consult on the auctions and using his valuable art to line their pockets. 
it's just, it's so, it so poignantly encapsulates just how atrocious this entire, um, art theft was and still is, um, to all of the heirs and the people who care about this, um, it's, it's just horrifying and I wish that I was being more eloquent right now but there like I've said earlier in the podcast there are no words that could adequately describe just how awful um this point in time is I think that what's really interesting the book actually includes that um Schiffer was called to account for his anti-semitic excesses um and he's at, after the war and he's actually questioned about Westfeld in particular in 1947 Um, and he says that he only remembers his currency violation, um, and he claims that after denying guilt for some time, Westfeld, um, admits to being guilty, and he confesses, which is never actually recorded, and is more than likely a lie, because Westfeld didn't do anything, um, and also they ended up sending, um, Emily Shulin, his wife, to jail, and after her release, Um, Schiffer recalls that she ended up being given back some confiscated furniture from their home and kitchen stuff, and Schiffer feels that this was a a very good full measure of our generosity to the family. Um, they They handed her back some furniture they stole from her apartment, likely from what we talked about earlier from Jock Altman's account. Um, that kind of, they still hadn't processed it over to Germany or they had and they were able to return it and Schiffer felt that this was, you know, adequate, adequate repayment for what they put Emily and Walter through throughout the duration of the war, which obviously it, um, it is nowhere near repayment for the horrors that both of these people had to experience under the Nazis. From this moment, uh, Westfeld is then deported, um, on a transport that left Cologne for Therensienstadt on October 1st, 1942. Um, and the Gestapo are noted at this time as cynically commenting that he was out of protective custody and had been, end quote, taken care of. Um, he was then transferred to Auschwitz, where he was later murdered. Um, and then the D- Dusseldorf District Court ended up declaring him dead, according to the book. Um, much later after the fact, on May 8th, 1945, even though that he had, um, he had died, uh, much, much earlier than the, obviously, than May 8th, 1945. They just don't, um, I don't, from what I understand, they don't have a actual date for when he was murdered because he was murdered with a lot of people, um, and they don't, from the large scale, they don't actually have the specific day that he would have passed because at that point in 1945, they were ramping up, the Nazis were ramping up the amount of murders that they were committing in the concentration camps as a way to kind of like expunge all evidence. And if they didn't um, carry out a murder, they were leaving concentration camps unattended and just leaving all of these people locked in them. Um, so they had, they don't, we don't actually have a date for. Ah, Walter's death. We know that he died in 1945 or maybe 1944, but no actual date because of the atrocities that were committed. In 1942, uh, Walter actually, on September 23rd of 1942, Walter actually finds a scrap piece of cloth and executes his will on the cloth um, and leaves everything to Emily, all of his worldly possessions, and he states in... um, 
the uh, the will that he is putting everything in police in custody and dusletory executed legally in ink and full awareness. Um, as long as I know immersion, which is what he used to call Emily, is all right. I don't have any worries. He left all of his property and assets to her, expressingly, expressly underlying in it everything with no exceptions. Um, and I think this kind of indicates that both that Walter knows that there are probably not many possessions left for him to leave Emily, so he wants her to have it all. And maybe it does also indicate, we're obviously speculating here, that there is still some hope in his eyes that she will be able to regain parts of the collection that was sold and that she can have some comfort in having his livelihood, their shared livelihood, given back to her. Um, and actually, on November 10th of 1949, the Dusseldorf District Court um, in issues the Certificate of Inheritance to Emily um, based on the will written on the piece of cloth that they were able to, I don't know how they were able to, but they were able to um, get from Walter before he passed. Um, and then they actually officially entered the marriage into, their marriage into the registry retroactively, um, because that entire time that they were married, because they were married during 1935, when everything started to, like, really take a turn, as we talked about in the very beginning of Walter's life, um, their marriage was never able to be legally, um, bound in the city of Dusseldorf, so as, like, a, I guess, peace offering to Emily, as a way to kind of, like, apologize to her, they retroactively, um, put their marriage down as a legal, as a legally binding marriage, um, in the city's, uh, marriage licenses. Um, and that's based on the act on the recognition of illicit marriages between racially and politically persecuted persons, which was passed on June 23rd of 1950, as we talked about before. Um, they, couldn't get married or their marriage couldn't be recognized because Emily was not Jewish and that was considered, end quote, race defilement. So, um, it's a beautiful gesture, but it obviously didn't bring Walter back. And I do wonder, um, how Emily must have felt about it. And we can only speculate how she felt on it. Um, but she did end up for the years that she lived after, uh, trying very hard on Walter's behalf to get their possessions back and to like kind of know that he was not murdered in vain um and that she did not lose him and everything that she had of him and that in the hope that she could have something back that was theirs together before everything went so terribly for them so after the collapse of the nazi regime emily kind of immediately gets to work trying to register claims for compensation, which includes the works of art. Um, I think that those claims of compensation were initially fulfilled as the furniture and the kitchen um, items that Schiffer mentioned they gave back to her. But obviously she's like, this is simply not enough. Like, th this is this is nothing. Please give me back what me and my husband had. Um, and the regional finance office in Dusseldorf initially would not do that because the records of the time list Walter's violations as just currency violations that were, you know, filed in court and were proceeded over by a judge and were then right, he was rightfully sentenced and that's what the paperwork says. But Emily fights really hard to be like, that's not the truth. Like, yes, these things happened, but all of it was done as a way to strip him and I of our possessions and to, you know, imprison him because he was Jewish. And so 
uh, the Allied trustees end up getting involved, and they say that she does have, end quote, the right to restitution or compensation, and that in mid-May of 1952, the first criminal division of Dusseldorf Regional Court reversed the sentence against Walter Westfeld because, in fact, they found he had committed the alleged currency violation in 1938, but only to escape persecution by Nazis, and since he was now absolved of his crime, the expropriation of his assets, including the forced auction of Westfeld's art collection at Lempert's in Cologne had been unwarranted. Um, what is, I think, even more heartbreaking is that during those compensation proceedings, um, only four of those 700 works were returned to Emily. So four of 700. It's just mind-boggling, mind-blowing. What's even more heartbreaking for Emily at the time um, is that they, the prosecutors, end up, the authorities rather, end up reaching out to Lempertz to find out where the lion's share of the art collection went. Um, and they respond very curtly to the request, saying, We auctioned off the painting collection of Walter Westfeld many years ago on the orders of the chief public prosecutor in Dusseldorf. The proceeds were then transferred as per request to the public prosecutor. And then they refused to give any information about the identity of the buyers, transportation of the artwork, on which days that of the auction that was held, which days which pieces were sold. They refused to give anything, and I don't really understand why, but for whatever reason, the authorities aren't able to subpoena this information, which um, leads me to believe that it was destroyed. So in 1955, 10 years after Walter's death, um, at least when his legal death is stated by the state, Emily is issued a general compensation payment for the general, like, the loss of the main share of the artwork. Um, so she gets the money, but I can imagine that that obviously wasn't very fulfilling. I mean, it, I'm sure it was helpful, but what she really wanted was the art back. She wanted the art that was so important to her husband and also to her, and she wanted to have those, those you know, memories back. And money, as great as it is, is not the memories of her husband. It's not going to bring him back from the dead. Um, so it was just, it's just such an unfortunate um, moment for Emily to have lost her husband so tragically, to have fought so hard, and then for them to say, well, we can't do anything else, so, you know, we're going to just provide you with the money, um, and we're sorry, and have a good day. That's basically how it ends for her. So following that, um, the book states that actually recently, um, the heirs of Walter have actually been able to invoke, um, some of the Washington principles and the joint declaration from the journal, the German federal government and states that we talked about last episode. And they've actually been able to reacquire a couple of the paintings that have come up to be hanging um, in different places. So there is a painting by Adolf Menzel, which is called Upturned Teapot, um, and they have successfully been able to have that piece restituted to them, um, but they are still in the process of getting another piece of artwork, um, which I cannot pronounce for the life of me, um, that is made by Franz von Lenbach, 
Um, they, they were in the process in 2010 when this book was published of getting that piece back. Um, but the mayor of the town in which the piece was being kept stated that we are not bound by the Washington De Declaration. If we had a duty to return the painting, there would be laws forcing us to do so. But there are no such laws. Walter Westfeld is dead after all. He disappeared in the concentration camp. We don't know anything else about it. So what a cruel statement, right? Like what a horrifying thing to say to these people. Um, and it just shows that, like, the flippancy with which the people who allowed this to happen and encouraged it to happen, um, just, it carries on to the modern day. Like, these people don't care that these, these heirs are in search of this artwork and that it means more than money. It means, like, having a connection and having, you know, justice be served in a way. And this mayor of this town is, like... He just died in a can died in concentration camp. Like we don't know anything else about it. It's not a big deal. And it's like I think that you do if you're getting so defensive about giving this piece of artwork back that's not rightfully yours, um, which seems to be a common theme. So unfortunately for us, and for Walter's heirs, um, that is the end of this story about Walter Westfeld. And obviously, I hope that more of his artwork is uncovered and his heirs are given it back because they. They really deserve it, you know? Like, it, they they really deserve to have their rightful property returned to them. And so, from here, we're going to do another story. I'm going to check the time real quick. Let's see. We're at 52 minutes, um, so I am probably only going to do two stories today, but I really was hoping to do three because I wanted to talk about the portrait of Adele Blockbauer, which is the famous restitution case, and I guess since that one is a pretty long case in and of itself, we'll talk about that one on its own next week. Um, that way, we can still cover the portrait of Adele Blockbauer because it is an incredibly interesting story, but I would like to dedicate this uh, podcast to one more story um, about another family, another individual who had their art, had their possessions wrongfully taken from them. Okay, I've taken a small moment to drink some water, take a deep breath, and eat some high chews before we go into this next um, story. I would also recommend everybody to just take a moment and take a deep breath if you have high chews or a snack of your choice to just like take a moment of self-care. Like, this is a hard episode. Um, these are hard stories to tell, but also really hard stories to listen to because it's especially tragic. And if you are of Jewish descent or you just have an empathetic bone in your body, I'm sure you can feel how heavy these, um, these stories are. And so I just invite you before we move into the next story to take a breath um, and just take pause with me to either reflect or give yourself the space you need to feel your emotions before we move into the next story, which is equally interesting, but also incredibly tragic and also incredibly necessary for us to learn about, um, because this individual was actually left out of history for quite some time and through restitution efforts, um, has been rediscovered and reappreciated for his impact on the art world and who he was as a person, so... Just take a moment if you need it to give yourself a little self-care before we move on to the next episode, next episode, next segment. Um, I know this is long. I know we're already at an hour, but we're going to do this last story justice. Um, and I hope that you continue to take this journey with me. And if not, if you're a little bit overwhelmed and you need to pick up the episode at another time, or this episode just isn't for you, like one story is enough and you think that emotionally you're kind of spent, I also completely respect that. You don't have to stay for the second half of you can't mentally do that. I do not take any offense. Um, 
just be kind to yourself, be gentle with yourself, um, and we'll move on to the next in a moment. So for our second and last portion of this episode, we're going to talk about Max Silberberg, who lived from 1878 to 1945, and who was known as one of the most famous um, art collectors in Breslau, um, which was, in 1933, was the third largest community, um, German, Jewish German community in the German Reich after Berlin and Frankfurt, um, and obviously post-World War II the Jewish community had been severely decimated, and so a lot of the culture of Breslau um, was lost with the people in it. Um, And he was known as one of the four art collectors included with Andrew Mellon, um, Jakob Goldschmidt, and Mortimer Schiff um, to be one of the four art collectors who who were known at the time worldwide. Uh, So he was very famous. But prior to becoming famous and prior to his fame being eradicated by the Nazi party, he was born in a town of Nürupen in Brandenburg. He is the son of the master tailor Isidore Silberberg, and his family was actually pretty humble. They lived in very humble circumstances, but they saved up to send Max to a gymnasium, which is a German word for the college preparatory secondary school that people will go to and still go to to this day. Um, From what I understand from very shakily from my old German classes um, was that, sorry, there is a fly in my room flying around my face, geez, Um, a gymnasium is, and I'm not cutting out these little, uh, these little moments where I'm just kind of, like, going off the track because I think it's important for you guys to know that I'm not just babbling information at you. I am a person as well. (laughs) But anyway, a gymnasium, from what I can remember from German class, is kind of like, um, high school or it's the step, it's the step after high school, right before you go away to university or college, depending on where you live, um, that you kind of focus in or hone in on what you're going to learn. Um, So he actually ended up, Max ended up serving in the military, um, and then him and his father and his sister moved to Buthen in Upper Silesia, and they moved there to receive um, business training, which he actually took on to quite quickly. Um, And at the age of 24, he ended up being the general manager for a firm known as M. Weissenberg, which was previously known as the Carl Francisi um, firm. So yeah, he he really, uh, sorry, I was like reading that directly from the book once again, because I don't want to kind of mess up Max's background and give you incorrect information about him. But yeah, from a very young age, he really took to business. He was really talented at it, um, and he was well-respected for that talent. So as time goes on and Max kind of ascends the ranks of the company, he ends up befriending and subsequently marrying the daughter of the owner of the company, Johanna Weissenberg. Um, And they have one child born in 1906 named Alfred. Um, And as you know, with with wealth, as the book states, comes a lot of interest in art. And as Johanna and him spend more time together and they move into their own home and they begin decorating that home he begins to take a great interest in art as just as she does um and they become very set on decorating their home in the art that they find to be not only most aesthetically pleasing but most moving and they want to kind of just enmesh themselves in the art world at this point through the way they decorate their home what i can tell this is kind of really where max finds his passion Um, he finds, like, his hobby 
is art, and he takes a lot of time to teach himself tell, blah, teach himself about the art that he's purchasing. Um, he studies all of the literature associated with it. He goes to auctions sometimes, not even to buy stuff, just to like see the art that's there and pick up the catalogs and then educate himself off of the information in the catalogs. He's just, you know, he's completely enamored with art, um, and he becomes, in his own right, a very serious collector of art. Um, and around 1920, he becomes co-owner of the firm that his wife's father owns, um, and, we and Weissenberg, and they end up moving to Breslau. Um, and he was direct, he was there to direct the relocation of the company's headquarters. Um, and they ended up, him and his wife at this time, joining the Breslau synagogue, um, because they are Jewish and their Jewish religion, their Jewish faith was incredibly important to them. And I think that it was important to them as they moved to not only kind of really set down roots in this community on a home front level and a business level, but also giving themselves um, access to a space in which their faith was not only accepted, but celebrated. It's said that there is a library in Max's house, and it's just full of books. Like, he's, he's interested in the French Romantics, as the book states. He's interested in realists, but most of all, he's interested in the Impressionists, um, and his library has tons of books about the Impressionist, um, and Impressionists, and one of his, um, favorite, uh, acquisitions that he made was a purchase from the 19, in the 1920s from the collection of Adolf, Adolf Rothermund in Dresden. And he purchases Landscape near Ornans by uh, Gustave Courbet. And he also purchases some notable works by Eugene Delacroix and Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Um, and so he's, he's really committed to the Impressionists. He loves them. Um, and his wife, Johanna, loves them too. And this is kind of them in this moment in the 1920s, really establishing themselves not only as a family with a lot of power and a lot of wealth, um, but also a family that is very, very interested and invested in the arts and that they are not only involved in the purchase of arts, but they're also involved in the support of artists as a whole and that they want to continue to interact with artists as much as they possibly can. And you know, as time goes on and as um, Max and Johanna befriend a lot of artists and invest in their artwork personally. He goes, his art, his art taste develops. He becomes a man of modern art as well. Um, and he purchases, um, art by George Brock, Paul Clay. Um, I cannot pronounce his name for the life of me, but Alexei von Jolensky, Henri Matisse, Otto Mueller, and George Seurat. Even though his villa was generously sized, as stated in the book, um, nearly 320 square meters or 3,500 square feet, he also used the stairway as a gallery. He soon had trouble finding room for all of the artwork that he uh, purchased. And his friend Carl Schleffer, who described Silverberg's collection in detail in 1931, once again in Kunstler, praised its balance. Um, so once again, Max is known for this innate understanding of art. He knows where to purchase art. He knows which artists to buy. Him and his wife have this eye for art. They have an eye for picking out good artists. And when they're 
displaying the artwork in their home they and then like just as their collection they're known to be able to display it in a way that is not only aesthetically pleasing for their guests but also shows the range that they have as collectors of art and how much they really appreciate not only specific artists but genres as a whole something that the book notice notes which i find really sweet um is that Max and Johanna's door was known to always be open and so people from all around the world visited their home to see their collection so we're talking artists, gallerists, um, museum workers, just everybody came and not even in a way like they're not presenting this collection to the public in their home as a way to brag they're presenting it because they legitimately love art and they love the joy that their guests have when they see this art and so for them it's not just a passion project it's also something to share with people who appreciate that with the art that they have um which i just think is a really lovely um illustration of how much max and johanna um, wanted to share what they had on their own terms with the people that they cared about the most and with new people every single day. This involvement um, didn't stop there and just like showing people their home. Um, the Silverbergs were known to be end quote, art patrons in the best sense of the word. And on Silverberg's initiative, according to the book, a society of friends of the arts was established in Breslau. Its sphere of activity went beyond that of the old art associations. The society brought together art collectors, dealers, and other interest interested parties from all over Germany and supported the Silesian Museum of Fine Arts. Silverberg was on the society's board and on the board of trustees of the museum. He had been involved in Breslau's Jewish Museum Association since its founding and served as its president. He was also president of the Jewish Kulturkreis, the culture circle. His wife, Johanna, worked in an association that offered job placement services for Jewish women. Silberg's name is recorded in the annals of the Silesian Museum of Fine Arts in association with several gifts. Gifts, <laughs> For example, a Karl Schuch painting in 1920. So, they are just, they're really in it for their community. Like, not just their art community, but the Jewish community. Like, they are giving back at every opportunity they can and trying to connect artists with the correct art dealers, museums, and galleries so that they can see their artwork move through those gall galleries and gain monetary value for those artists. So they're very, very involved throughout the 20s and the 30s, even during the financial crisis when they have to liquidate some of their assets and some of their artwork. They are still committed the entire time time to ensuring that their artwork is easily accessible to everybody that wants to have access to it, which as we know on this podcast, I am all about ease of accessibility. So this is something that I really appreciate and I love to see for this time. So things kind of turn very quickly, unfortunately, for um, Max and Johanna, just like we talked about with, um, with Walter and Emily. So the National Socialists seized power in January 30th of 1933, and Breslau is one of those German cities that almost immediately gets hit, um, and they are dealing with a lot, a lot of persecution as Jewish people. Um, so the book states that in March of 1933, stormtroopers 
brutally expelled Jewish lawyers and judges from Breslau's district and regional courts, garnering praise from Germany's new rulers for presenting such a quote-unquote model case of how to deal with the Jews. Um, so one of the victims of this early phase of Jewish persecution in Breslau was Ismar Lippmann, who had made a name for himself as a collector of modern art. He almost immediately lost his license to practice as an attorney and a notary in March of 1933 and took his own life in 1934. Um, this is somebody that Max would have known. Um, and it was obviously very, very scary. Like, this is a couple that is very much involved in the Jewish community, has a lot of sway and a lot of um, involvement in the Jewish community. And they are seeing people that they know and care about, people they respect, um, just immediately being persecuted. And they know that it's going to happen to them. And he, Max, is relieved of all of his official posts in 1933. And then it's recorded that he voluntarily withdrew from the board of trustees at the Silesian Museum. Um, but it's also recorded that he was forced out of the Society of Friends of the Arts, so we can assume that he did not voluntarily um, leave the trustee, uh, the trustees for the Little Celestia Museum of Fine Arts, just based off what we know of how much he cared and how involved he was, was and how well liked he was by his peers on the board. Um, it seems that these, these new laws that came into place in 1933 just, like, really immediately took hold and forced him out of all the things that he cared about. Then these drastic changes start to occur, and the Silberberg's villa that is at Landsbergstrasse, which is the street um, where they live in Breslau, is almost immediately taken over by an SS battalion leader named Ernst Müller, um, and he ends up reporting that the villa itself, with end quote, its self-contained setting and extensive grounds allowed for later expansion and would be the ideal solution for the security service headquarters, um, and they proceed with a forced sale in the following summer of 1935, um, something that I probably should have put in the definitions um episode was what forced sale is and forced sale during this time and forced sales have also occurred post-world war ii but for uh forced sales are when um the party who owns the property is then forced as it sounds to sell their items and so like these kind of like falsified legal documents are drawn off to say that they are willingly selling their property when in actuality they're not willingly selling their property because there is a law in place saying that they as jewish um jewish members of you know the faith are no longer having rights to their property so like the law counteracts with them being able to willingly sell off the property so the documentation they produce at the sale says that like it was their choice but then if you look at the law it was clearly not their choice um so it's called a forced sale for that reason from there max johanna and their son have to move to a very small apartment um, and there's obviously not enough room for Max's collection, so he sells majority of the artwork, his entire library, all of their really valuable rugs, um, and any antiques that they have go to several auctions at Berlin's Paul Grappe auction in 1935 and 1936. Um, this is one of the many auctions at the beginning of um, the Nazi occupation that is known as a Jewish auction, um, and... In contracts made with Grappe, um, he bitterly noted expendability as the reason for the sale. 
of some 160 art objects, among them works by major artists such as Brock, Cezanne, Corinth, Corot, Courbet, Degas, Van Gogh, Leibel, Lieberman, Maurice, Menzel, and Renoir, Max Silverberg was left with only a few paintings and drawings that he could not bear to part with. These included his favorite piece of all, Manet's La Sultane, but Silverberg would have to sacrifice this picture as well in a forced sale in 1937. Today it hangs in Emile Brule collection in Zurich. So I just read that directly from the book. Um, but yeah, the Jewish auctions are brutal and like are one of the first instances at this time in 35 and 36 of Jewish property being stripped from Jewish owners. Um, and it's like the, 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 the domino that pushes forward all the other dominoes to fall in the very beginning of this art theft and possession. So I just realized that I've been calling him Silberg. I'm so sorry. His name is Silberberg. It's, I just have been like talking, 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 and I was just looking down at my, um, at the book in my notes again, and I realized that I've been pulling out part of the syllable of his name. So I apologize for calling him Silberg. It's Silberberg. Um, I need to kind of slow down when I'm talking clearly so I don't keep messing up people's names. Um, but the company starts to go under at this time too. The company that, um, Max now has owned, and that his wife's father had started. Um, and it is written in a diary of um, a Breslau con chronicler, Dr. Willie Cohn, that the that Silverberg had collapsed financially because he was no longer able to obtain money as the banks had canceled credit on him. Um, oh my god, is that the... I think that's the... Uh, that's the ice cream truck. What a terrible time for it to show up right now. Um... <laughs> But yeah, so the state revenue office at this time had gotten wind of Silberberg's auction activities um, from when he was purchasing art and then from him selling the art against his will. And they used this as an excuse to say that he was leaving the country to avoid tax evasion. Um, and they then decided to hold that against him in mid-1935. So they, they, even though they are the ones who liquidated his assets and made him auction off his artwork, um, the artwork that he had to auction off to live in the smaller apartment as well is considered to him be considered to be proof that he's going to try and flee the country to avoid taxes somehow. Um, so the banks cancel his lines of credit. Um, and that's when things like start to get really, really bad for the Silberbergs. Add insult to injury. They then, um, the government then, uh, assesses the Reichflight tax, Reichflight tax, which was tax put in, put in, tax put on um, people of the Jewish community who were identified by the government to be quote-unquote fleeing the country. Um, and so even if you weren't fleeing the country, if you were presumed to be doing activity that would like insinuate that you were attempting to flee the country, you would be given this hefty tax that would basically sap you of your assets and any money that you had so that you would be unable to leave the country even if you wanted to. And then immediately following that, um, the Silberbergs end up having their son, Alfred, um, they end up finding out that he is arrested on the night of Kristallnacht, um, and then taken to Buchenwald's, um, concentration camp, which, if you know about Buchenwald, it's, um, it's, it's, like, all concentration camps are absolutely horrible at this time, and none of them, 
are treating anyone decently, but Buchenwald, like Auschwitz, is known notoriously for being absolutely awful. I don't know the reason why, um, but the officials end up letting Alfred return home um, with the condition that he leaves immediately. Um, it is noted that for his entire life, he never mentions what happened um, to him in the camp for the time that he was there. Um, and in 1939, him and his wife, um, Max and Johanna's daughter-in-law, they, um, I believe her name is Gerda, yeah, Gerda, they flee to London. Um, and so the Silverbergs undergo just a devastating loss of their community, of their assets, and of their identity very, very rapidly starting in 1935 and moving onward into World War II next steps end up um, occurring with the Nazi party and Aryanization um, takes face, pl takes place. Aryanization um, is the process that the um, Nazi party used to replace Jewish people with who they deem to be like outstanding Aryan citizens in their eyes. And so Max is forced to share his, um, to, to share, rather to sell his share in the company that he owns with his wife um, and he ends up having to surrender it and then he is immediately replaced by a Nazi sympathizer, um, Carl Wilhelm. And this is a perfect example of Aryanization because it shows like a Jewish family who is doing well, who has owned this company for years, who is like has made names for themselves, being immediately removed for being Jewish, and then replaced with somebody who is approved by the Nazi Party because they, you know, they evoke Aryan values, um, Aryan values, and then the company is run by that individual and they fire all of their Jewish employees. And this is the process of just like removing any trace of Judaism, any trace of Jewish community from any part of Europe. Um, and it starts with instances like Max's where he's forced to forfeit his livelihood um, to make way for somebody who fits the ideals of the Nazi party to take over. They have no money at this point. Um, Max is forced to sell off the rest of his paintings. He's forced to auction them off and any valuable jewelry that they have, they ask Goethe, their daughter-in-law, to help them sell. Um, they are, they just have no, they have nothing left financially. Um, and so they're at this point just desperately selling off any possessions they have of value to try and make ends meet um, in this tiny apartment that they're living in. Max and Johanna and their son and his wife. Before they could even sell off the remaining of the artwork, though, the book states that um, the Nazi authorities asked Breslau, Breslau art and anti um, antiques firm Schmendek KG to perform an appraisal, and the company's proprietor, Eric Schaffernitz, wasted no time in currying favor with the authorities by insinuating that Silberberg had committed tax fraud. The web of discriminatory measures had just tightened another notch. The Nazi state apparatus swooped in and simply appropriated the rest of the confiscated collection. Um, so then from that point, the Silesian, the Silesian Museum of Fine Arts gets involved and they ask to utilize the rest of the Silberberg collection. Um, so any art that was absorbed by the Nazis that they felt they could part with was then given to the, uh, the Silesian Museum, which <laughs> uh, Max used to be on the board of. So 
they're just completely everything that they own just completely wiped out they don't they don't have access to any of it and the state government the nazi state government is just getting their hands in everything they can because they know how valuable max and johanna's collection is they know how much money it can run them and they know how much power they can use by having it and so they just completely decimate their assets in October um, of 1941, Max and Johanna are resettled in the words of the NSDAP um, because the Gestapo is launching efforts to expel Jewish families from Breslau at this point. Um, and so they're kind of putting them in what the book calls and references as Jewish apartment sharing communities. And these were temporary living quarters that were used and um, where they would put many Jewish families all together um, before they would decide where individuals were going, like which concentration camps they were sending them to. Um, so Max and Johanna Silberg were now aged 63 and 53 respectively, and they were brought to um, one of the interim camps that was located in the Cistercian Monastery in Grusau near Landshut. Um, and the conditions there were awful, just as they were in any of the interim camps before. They were moved to the even worse camps, the concentration camps. Um, there were there were no supplies. There was tons of overcrowding. These people were on top of each other constantly. Um, and they were there in the winter. And so they were freezing to death because they had no access to heat. Um, and so... They were also forced to pay with any remaining money they had for their accommodations there. Um, and that is, that is just what um, Max and Johanna ended up living in for the last um, couple years of their lives. So um, there's actually a letter here as well that the book um, includes that I think is really important to include in this episode and it says the last sign of life that alfred silberberg and his wife gerda had from their parents in grissau dates from 1941 it says this is from max and johanna to alfred and gerda it says i don't my dear children i don't know if you received my letters of october 20th and november 11th which i also wrote you from here i haven't heard a word from you in a long time your parents-in-laws don't live in Breslau anymore. Uncle and Aunt Paula either, and will be moving away in the next few days too, along with Aunt Lena. So this is goodbye. Perhaps a kinder fate will bring us together again. I wish you all the best, and hopefully we'll see each other again. Your father and mother. Um, and in Grusau, from this moment on April 29th, 1942, Max fills out the asset declaration form that requires that is required of those who were what the Nazi describes as immigrating, which is um, pushing them from these interim camps to concentration camps. And it is noted in December of 1942 that Max Israel Silberberg last resided in Grusau, deported May 30th, 1942, and has identified himself as having no property. Um, and he and his wife were taken to Theresienstadt, the same place that we know Walter Westfeld was taken, and from there to Auschwitz. Um, and then from there, they died. Um, we don't know what their fate was. We know they were murdered, but there is no information for us from there. Um, and Alfred then posthumously, retroactively, had his parents um, declared dead on May 8th, 1945, just the same date that um, Walter was declared dead. So we know that 
May 8th, 1945, um, is just a day in which these declarations that the living heirs requested were finally pushed through, so we don't know their actual dates of death, and we don't know what happened to them. Um, it's just, it's just a terrible end, you know, it's just, it's just awful, and Alfred and Goethe, um, never had any closure as to what happened to them either. So at the end of the war, Alfred and Goethe are trying desperately um, to retain compensation in the form of the artwork that was stolen during World War II um, from their parents. And um, it says, with regards to the losses that had occurred in Breslau, such as the confiscation of a portion of his father's art collection in 1939, Alfred Silberberg's claims were in vain because the city was now a part of Poland and thus outside of the jurisdiction of the restitution and compensation laws. Alfred and Goethe were unable to trace the whereabouts of the painting, drawings, watercolors, sculptures, books, and rugs and antiques that were auctioned in the foreclosure sales in 1935 and 1936 at Graupe, nor did they receive any compensation for these losses. Max Silberberg's son was able to assert a concrete claim only for one of the auction works, the Courbet painting, Le Grand Pont. He discovered its owner in 1968, and they managed to reach a settlement. So they... They only got one piece of art back. All of this artwork that Alfred remembers in his childhood home that was so revered by the Jewish community, by the art community at large, that people traveled all around the world to come and see. This artwork that was so central to his mother and his father's livelihood and their personal joy, he retained one piece. And everything else was sold and lost. Um, it's scattered everywhere. Um, and a lot of them have even just disappeared out of the eye of history as a whole. So we don't know because so many private collectors purchased so many of the pieces and the documentation, like the train, the line of documentation um, has fallen off in terms of where each of these pieces went after they were purchased. Um, there's no way for us to know. They're just lost in time. There, There's hundreds of pieces of artwork that we will never know where they went, um, which is true for so much majority of the art theft that was committed across Europe during World War II. Nearly everything that was kept in the Silesian Museum um, from the Silberberg's um, collection is now in the museum in Poland, um, the museum of um, the National Museum in Warsaw. Um, and this is because on March 8th of 1946, um, a decree was stated called on abandoned formerly German assets, and the Polish government ordered that such assets should become property of the Polish state. And so these pieces of art um, were considered to now be owned by Poland because Breslau had now been absorbed into Poland. Um, and at the time, Alfred and Goethe could not make a claim for those pieces because the law stated that um, Max and Johanna had legally auctioned them off, like, within their free will, which is obviously not true. They were forced to do that. Um, so all of it is actually existing. All of the things that were taken from the Silberbergs by the Silesian Museum, um, all of them are in the National Museum at Warsaw, and um, they cannot be accessed by the heirs, as far as I understand. 
what's also just really fucked up part of my French about the decree, which I didn't even notice until I just glanced down, it says the decree also includes an the decree also specifies, however, that it does not apply to anyone who belonged to, end quote, an ethnic group whose rights were restricted after January 30th, 1933, and who had been coerced into selling their assets after September 1st, 1939. So Max Silberberg's possessions, as I just stated, um, could not be reclaimed because the decree refuses to acknowledge his forced sales um, and instead claims that they are rightfully owned by Poland. Um, also interesting, Poland, a signatory of the Washington Principles, has to date rejected any fair and just solution for Nazi looted assets. Silverberg's still life with leaks is still on view in Warsaw as a noble donation of the collector Silverberg, about whom no other information is provided. It's just awful. <laughs> like, the whole thing is just absolutely awful. So, in a way, this happens a lot, um museums will acknowledge and states in Europe will acknowledge that they still have artwork um, that they know and have identified like from collectors when it was taken, who it was taken by, for sales, forced auctions. And they will say that because that artwork was abandoned or because the heirs did not come at that time, did not come for it or like knew about it at that time and did not show up for it, that they do not have to return it. And even though the Washington Declaration says that there is no statute of limitations on when a family can come forward and when heirs can come forward to restitute their artwork and get their possessions back, um, a lot of countries, a lot of museums will still deny it because of these kinds of decrees that say that they will not acknowledge um, artwork that was um, sold to them through forced sale or forced auction. So it's the whole thing is just absolutely a mess. Thankfully, though, um, Goethe, Alfred's wife, the Silberberg's daughter-in-law, did not give up. Um, and in December of 1998, she actually resumed the search for the artworks, and she is known to be the first person in the world that successfully retrieved art from a lost, um, a lost collection based on the Washington Principles. Um, I'm going to read directly from the book here to, do, to give you the full scope of the information. Um, in summer 1999, the Stiftung Prussische Kulturbesitz Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation, and the claimant reached a fair and just solution. It returned to Goethe Silberberg Van Gogh's reed pen drawing and repurchased Hans von Maurice's painting Mann mit Gelbem, Hut, Man with Yellow Hat. Both works had surfaced in Berlin. The drawing in the Kupferstich Kabinett, Museum of Prints and Drawings, and the paintings in the National Gallery. Max Silverberg had been forced to surrender them in the Jewish auction of 1935, where they had been purchased by the Friends of the National Gallery and donated to the museum. Goethe Silverberg made a special trip to Berlin for the works. She vividly remembered the man with the yellow hat. He used to hang in her father-in-law's dining room in the house on Landbridgestrasse in Breslau, where the family met every Sunday for lunch under the painting's watchful gaze. Um, in the meantime, some 40 works of art that Max Silverberg lost in the Jewish auctions at Graupe or was forced to sell, including 17 paintings and drawings in the museums in Germany and abroad and other in private collections worldwide, have been located. Museums in Germany, the United States, Israel, and Switzerland have even some private collectors have been willing to come to an amicable agreement based on the Washington Principles after learning the fate of the collector and the respective works of art. In some cases, the international art trade has played a helpful role in restitution. Um, so, it is 
somewhat of a happy ending, this portion of the story, to know that Goethe was able to not only identify the works, but have some of them return to her family. Um, it's it's somewhat of a relief. It will never it will never make up for the brutal deaths of Max and Johanna. It will never make for the suffering they had to endure both physically and mentally over the stripping of their personal property. Um, but it is somewhat of a victory for the family because at least at the very end of the day, they have the acknowledgement that the things that their family valued were taken from them um, unjustifiably and that they were given back to them. Um, so there is some solace in that, but it will obviously never make up for the atrocities that the family has had to suffer and had to suffer. And that's it um, for our story today, guys. We're coming in at an hour and a half, which I know is pretty long um, for the podcast, um, but I hope that you hung on because you were interested um, and because hearing the stories about Walter Westfeld and Max Silberberg and their families really struck a chord with you and that this lesson was not only one of education but one of personal reflection. Um, this is really my life's passion for a variety of reasons but because in my heart and at my core I want to see these things, these possessions, these, the property that meant so much to these people rightfully returned to their heirs because there was no reason to take them to begin with. There was no valid or justifiable reason to strip these people of the, their humanity on every level, including taking their personal property. Um, and I want to see these families get the justice they deserve and have what they rightfully owe returned to them. Um, and rather rightfully own, sorry. <laughs> um, I really appreciate that you guys took the time to listen with me today. I know it was a long episode, and like I said, next week I will dedicate the whole episode to the portrait of Adele Blockbauer, um, because it is probably the most famous restitution case surrounding, um, Nazi art theft and World War II art theft as a whole. Um, it's a very moving story. Maria Altman is an amazing woman, was an amazing woman, um, who really carried on the legacy of her aunt Adele Blockbauer in a beautiful way. Um, and if you haven't um, heard of that story and you want to prepare for next week's episode, I would recommend watching um, the movie that includes Helen Mirren and Ryan Reynolds. It's called, I believe it's The Lady in Gold, not The Woman in Gold, but it might be The Woman in Gold, um, which is based off of the book the woman in gold about this restitution case. So if you're interested in prepping for the episode next week with that, feel free to watch that. Um, but I will see you next time. I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your Sunday and I look forward to chit-chatting next week. Bye guys.